Welcome to the church family that is lifting lives through living love, inspiring hope, filling with faith, and transforming our world. These recorded messages are made available so that you might have additional opportunities to stay connected with us, and then you might learn and grow in your faith. God bless you as you hear the word today. And now, the message. Our scripture reading for this Sunday is from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. They gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door, and he preached the word to them. Some men came, bringing to him a paralyzed man, carried by four of them. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it and then lowered the mat the man was lying on. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, Why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts, and he said to them, Why are you thinking these things? Which is easier, to say to this paralyzed man, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Get up, take your mat, and walk? But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. He got up, took his mat, and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, We have never seen anything like this. May the Lord bless the reading and the hearing of his word. There's a member of our church who recently had surgery to remove a tumor. And both before and after his surgery, I had the chance to be with him, and he reflected with me on how this tumor, the discovery of this tumor, had kind of deepened his faith. It taught him humility and helped him to learn to trust and depend in God's providence and his guidance in ways that he never had before. And, and the part that he said, it kind of, it also awakened him to just how rich the community of faith, that support really was in his life. He, he said one Sunday kind of leading up to the surgery, he went, up to, went out for lunch after church with some friends from church. And one of the people at the table said to him, uh, you know, hey, when you go before surgery, um, she had recently had a major surgery or so. She said, you're going to feel all those prayers. You'll just feel them. And so the day before surgery, I was visiting him in his home. And I remember he just teared up. And he said, Dave, I feel those prayers right now, lifting him. There's another member of our church who recently lost their spouse, his spouse. And uh, amazingly, he showed up at church the very next Sunday. And, and I say amazingly, because not because he wasn't a regular church attender, he is, but because most people, when they suffer a loss, Church isn't the first place they come. It takes a little while before they're ready to come back into the community of faith. And so I, I, I said to him, wow, I'm so glad to see you. I'm surprised. He said, yeah, well, there was a part of me that didn't want to come this morning. That wasn't sure how to respond when people ask how I'm doing. I wasn't sure I was ready for it. But he said, I, I thought about Matthew 5, 4, that said, blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. 
And I recognize that if I want to receive God's comfort, I have to place myself in the position to receive that comfort from others. And he said, and, and, and so he came because he said, this is where I receive my comfort and strength in this community of faith. There's another member of our church who uh, last fall had COVID and he was, you know, wasn't able to get out of bed for a few weeks. And then once the COVID kind of left his, his respiratory system, he was discovered that his strength was gone. In fact, he couldn't get out of bed. He went to the hospital and then he spent, you know, two months between hospitals and rehab centers trying to recover his strength and ultimately is still even now trying to get back to where he was, but he's now wheelchair bound. And so early this March, uh, early this February, a group of men from the church went out to his home and built a wheelchair ramp to the SAWS ministry, which let me just give a plug for SAWS. Uh, if you want to live out this story of the four friends carrying uh, their friend, the paralytic, to Jesus. Join Walt and his team one morning for, for SAWS because it's a beautiful, wonderful ministry to provide outside access, to restore outside access to someone who's wheelchair-bound. While they were building the ramp, I was inside doing what pastors do. I was talking. Uh, so I, I was inside talking with Ann and his wife, and she said something to me that was really profound. She, she, she explained, she said, at first I was really embarrassed about receiving this help. She said, but then, she said, she, she, this is the way she said it. it was like God spoke to her. And God said, people want to help you. You have to let them help you. And then I just thought about this couple who has given so much to the church and to others over the course of their lives. And now they were in a position to receive and to receive a blessing through that. Three short little stories all happened in the last two weeks here in this church but all point to the same truth that I think this gospel points us, this gospel story points us to. That every single one of us is carried to Jesus through the gift of community. Not one of us can claim that we have come to Jesus all on our own without anybody else's help. We're all carried to Jesus through community. This story recently came alive to me in a, in a way I didn't expect uh, through my time in the Holy Lands. Um, if you had asked me before we went to Israel, like what sites I was most excited to see, I would have said, you know, Jerusalem and Bethlehem, Nazareth, places that, you know, kind of stand out in the Bible story. Capernaum probably wouldn't have made the list, and yet it was by far one of my favorite places to go to. Uh, Capernaum was kind of Jesus's home base in the Galilee region. And I didn't quite realize until I got there how many stories took place in and around Capernaum. Like on the hills surrounding, just above Capernaum, you have the Sermon on the Mount and the feeding of the 5,000. And in Capernaum itself, you have the stories of, you know, the hearing, healing of Jairus' daughter, the healing of the centurion's servant, the woman who touched the hem of Jesus' robe as he passed through the, the crowded marketplace, the, the calling of Matthew, all those things took place in Capernaum. And what was really cool about Capernaum was that it was, it's an archaeological site. Whereas most of the other places of Jesus' ministry uh, you know, took place in cities that have been torn down and rebuilt and torn down and rebuilt over the centuries so that, you know, so that scholars are, are kind of making their best guess of where Jesus was or where this site happened. You know, and, and those places are buried. 
below 20, 30 feet of rubble. In, in Capernaum, it wasn't like that because the site, you know, was, it, it, the, the city basically was kind of destroyed by an earthquake, never rebuilt until it was recovered as an archaeological site. And so when you're walking through and you see all these rocks, you see these are the buildings, these are the pathways where Jesus walked, talked, performed miracles and worshiped. It's all right there. So let me tell you about one site in particular I found beautiful. So this is kind of an aerial view. At the lower side, you have the, the big rectangles. Those are the, that's the synagogue. Uh, and, and even though that, that synagogue was built in the second century, it was built on the same site over the first century synagogue where Jesus would have worshipped. You can still see the foundation of the building where Jesus would have worshipped with his disciples. Pretty cool. But then the site up above that, that octagonal structure, that's what I want to talk about because that's the site of a fifth century church that was built around what's known as St. Peter's home. Now, it wasn't St. Peter's home per se. St. Peter is from Bethsaida, which is just, you know, not that far from Capernaum, in fact. But it rather, it's the home of his mother-in-law. Uh, in Luke 4, we, we hear the story that Jesus, when he was in Capernaum, went to Peter's home, but his mother-in-law was sick, and he healed her, and, she, and, 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 and then she got up and began serving Jesus and the disciples. That's the site where that happened. And so this home of Peter's in-laws would have become the home base for Jesus within Capernaum. That that's where he would have rested when he was between visits. That's where he would have taught. People would have gathered around that home to hear him. That's where he would have performed miracles. And that's where it would have been that this story took place. That the four friends brought their paralyzed friend one day to see Jesus, except they couldn't get to him because around that building, the, it was so crowded with a press of people, they couldn't get in. And so they climbed up on top and punched a roof, uh, punched a hole through the straw roof and lowered their friend down before Jesus. Now, there's two kind of observations that I want to make about this story, about this text, things that are kind of sort of odd in it, and then I'll ask you two questions to follow. The first observation is that Jesus' healing for this man goes much more deep than just the physical healing. In fact, the very first words that Jesus says to the man when he's lowered through the roof is, son, your sins are forgiven, which I imagine is probably a beautiful sentiment for that man lying on the mat, but you can imagine him thinking, well, thanks, Jesus, but that's not why I came to you today, right? Like, I'm on the mat. Look at me. Like, I, I need something else today. But, but that's, Jesus doesn't address the physical at the beginning. He addresses the spiritual. He addresses the heart. He says, son, your sins are forgiven. And those words are blasphemous. To the Pharisees who are gathered in that presence, they begin whispering and murmuring, who does this man thinks he is? Only God can forgive sins. And Jesus, aware of their muttering, aware of the thoughts of their hearts, he addresses and calls it out. He says, why are you acting like this? Which is easier, he asks them, to say to this man, your sins are forgiven or to say, get up, take your mat and walk. Now, it's kind of a rhetorical question, right? Like, just about any of us would say, well, sure, it's easier to say your sins are forgiven. But not for Jesus. For him, the easier part is the physical. In fact, he says, just so you will know that I have the authority to do this, he said to him, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. And the man took his mat and walked out in full view of them all. But, but that... that 
visible miracle of the paralyzed man getting up and walking off. For Jesus, that's just the outward and visible sign of a more important healing that has taken place deep in his heart and in his soul. That's the healing that Jesus came for, that Jesus was aimed at. So I go back to that question again, which is easier to say your sins are forgiven or to say, get up, take your mat and walk. Jesus asked the question, what is easier? I want to ask you the question, what's more important? Which healing matters the most? How many of you have known someone who is broken in body, but whole in spirit? I mean, I can think of people in our own church, people I've known in my lives, who even though they have broken bodies, yet the wholeness and love of their spirit just radiates and shines right through, right? And by the same token, I can think of people, you can too probably, who are whole in body, but broken in spirit. Which one is more important? Which one is easier to heal? And I sense Jesus saying in this moment, look, if all I did was heal this man's broken body, if I just told him to get up and walk, my healing would be in his life would be incomplete. Because the healing that Jesus came to accomplish was the, the ends of Jesus wants to heal us inside out. He wants us to have wholeness of spirit and wholeness of heart. And when Jesus says to this man, your sins are forgiven, those aren't just flippant words that he speaks. He speaks as one who sees to the very brokenness of his condition, who yearns for God's healing inside and out. And when he says, your sins are forgiven, Jesus knows exactly what it will require of him in order to accomplish the full forgiveness of not just his sins, but the forgiveness of the world. He knows he must journey to the cross and lay down his life. That's the love that he communicates to this man, a love that will go whatever distance is necessary to restore this man to God. So that's the first oddity observation I want to make. The second is this. The second observation is that it's the friend's faith that saves this paralyzed man. That's the way the text reads. It says, when Jesus saw their faith, he said, your sins are forgiven. This is you know, kind of outside the usual pattern of Jesus's healings. Normally when he heals someone, it's because of that person's faith. When he saw his faith, when he saw her faith. And yet in this moment, the faith of the paralyzed man is not once mentioned in the passage. Instead, it's when Jesus saw the faith of his friends that he pronounced his sins forgiven. Now this kind of goes against the grain of the way kind of I was raised up, and I bet many of you are raised up. Like I was taught the importance of faith, that, you know, that it is by grace you have been saved, by faith. You know, Ephesians 2.8, this is, you know, God's gift to us. It's not by our works, it's by faith. But in that breath was always emphasized, you know, it's your personal faith that matters, your faith in Jesus Christ. It's not your mommy and your daddy's faith. It's not your friend's faith. It's not your preacher's faith. It's not your church's faith. You have to believe in Jesus to receive forgiveness and salvation. And I'm not discounting the fact that I do think we all have to have our own personal journey to Christ. 
But I am acknowledging the fact that there will come a time in all of our lives when our faith fails us. And when our faith fails us, when life comes along and kind of knocks our legs out from underneath us, that's when we need to rely on the faith of our friends. I mean, I don't know this man's story, but I could imagine that he has sought every other possible avenue of healing. That he's gone to every healer, that he's tried every treatment, that he's made every prayer, gone to the temple, made every every offering he could. He's probably done everything. And so you might imagine that he no longer believes that there's going to be any healing in his life. Maybe he didn't even want his friends to take him to Jesus. He didn't want to try one more thing that he knew wasn't going to work. His faith may have been completely gone. It didn't matter. His friends had faith, and that faith was enough. I think what I love about this story more than anything else is the way it elevates the importance of friends. If you look on Luke's gospel, for instance, it says, when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the man, Not son, your sins are forgiven, but instead he said, friend, your sins are forgiven. And the fact that he addresses this man as friend, it kind of points me to some degree of to John's gospel. And the time that Jesus spent his last night with the disciples, and he said to them, I no longer call you my servants, but I call you my friends. Because servants don't know what their master is doing, but you are my friends. And then he tells them, no one has greater love than this, than he laid down his life for his friends. Jesus acknowledges, elevates the importance of friends in our lives. How the love of a friend laying himself down can be part of each and every one of our healing. So these are the two observations again. First, that Jesus wants to work healing deep down in our souls and our hearts. And secondly, that healing is accomplished sometimes through the ministry of friends in our lives. And so now my two questions follow. And the first is this, is who has helped you carry you to Jesus? You know, but actually I want to reframe that question. The question I really want you to reflect on is, do you, how deep is your sense of being carried? Do you know that you are carried? Do you have friends in your life that you know, even if you screw up, even if you mess up, or even if life hits you out of the, do you have people you know who are there for you to carry you? Some of you might be at a place right now where something has gone wrong at work or where Something's not right in your home or your marriage or maybe work is falling apart and you need friends. You need people to come around you and let you know, we got you. We are carrying you right now. And that's hard for a lot of us. I know so many people, and this is kind of, I can speak out of my own heart, my own experience too. It's a lot of people say, you know, it's a lot easier for me to do for someone else than to let someone do for me. We don't like to be carried. We want to be strong and independent. We don't want to be on the mat. But do you have a sense of being carried? Do you know that there are people who are carrying you, loving you even now? I go back to that first story I told about the wheelchair ramp and how the woman said, you know, 
If there are people who want to help you, you got to let them. Part of being a friend is opening yourself up to receive the care and love and support of others. Second question is this. Just the flip side, who are you now helping to carry to Jesus? If you have received healing in your heart, if you do have a sense of wholeness that you're journeying towards, do you, who are you helping to carry in turn? Or maybe another way to phrase this question is, how good a friend are you? How would your friends describe you? As distant, busy, kind of strange, you know, stranger preoccupied, don't really know what's going on in my life, don't really go, know what's going on in theirs? Or would your friends describe you as someone who is present, loyal, faithful, there for you? And again, I speak out of my own experience because sometimes I find it's easier to be a good pastor and a good father and a loyal husband than it is to be a faithful friend. I can get so busy that I lose touch with the people who really, truly matter, who've been there for me. And I want in my heart of hearts to be the kind of friend who is there to carry others. And I hope you do too. So who are you carrying? And who is carrying you? Who are the friends that you have in your life? Let me take you back to that village, that archaeological site. Again, this is that aerial view of that octagon. The problem is when I was there, and if you go there now, you will not see this octagon from this viewpoint because they've built a church on top of it. I don't know how many years ago it was built, and that's what it looks like. You might be thinking to yourself, that is one ugly-looking church. Uh, <laughs> that's what I thought when I was in Capernaum. I thought, what is this building? I mean, it's, it's like a big flying saucer kind of, you know, on top of it. I, I will say it's built octagonally, so like the structure mirrors the church below. And when I went inside, I saw how beautiful it was because it's windows all the way around. So you're looking out, you know, on the hills of Galilee or on the sea of Galilee itself. And the beautiful thing I thought that, you know, that kind of blew me away was there in the center, you see the railing. There's a glass floor inside that railing. And if you go and you look down through that glass floor, you're looking directly down into the room where Jesus would have been teaching in St. Peter's home. So when you're standing in that spot above, you have the exact vantage point of the friends who, have who would have lowered their friend down to Jesus on a mat. The next day after we visited this site, one of the members of our trip shared that right before we left for the trip, his brother-in-law had discovered he was diagnosed with cancer. And he shared that while we were in that church, that's what he was doing. He was thinking about his brother-in-law and lowering him down before Jesus. And to me, that was such a beautiful image of what prayer is really about. Ruth Haley Barton says, intercessory prayer is nothing more than being in the presence of God on behalf of someone else. It's lowering our loved ones down before Jesus. And so what we're going to do now is we're going to go into a time of intercessory prayer. We're going to sing a, a familiar prayer hymn, uh, and then Kim's going to lead us in prayer. And as we sing and as we pray, I just want you to be thinking of who in your life could you right now be lowering down before Jesus? Do you have a friend? Maybe it's even yourself 
that you just need to kind of come before Jesus and ask for healing. If you do pray for someone today, I hope you'll take the card that was in your bulletin. There's a very simple card that on one side says, I prayed for you today. On the flip side has a little address where you can mail it very easily and just write a little note. It doesn't have to be anything deep or profound. It can just be, dear friend, I know you're going through a tough time right now. And I want you to know I'm here for you. And I prayed for you today. I'm praying for God to mend what is broken, to give you healing and wholeness and strength of heart. And I just want you to know no matter what, if you call me, I'll be there. Because you never know what God can do through the power of friends. That's what carries us before Jesus.